We'll hear argument next in case 07308, United States versus Clintwood Elkhorn Mining Company. Mr. Jay. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, respondents sought and received a full refund of the tax they paid on exported coal for the full three-year period permitted them by the tax refund statute. What the Court of Appeals decision permitted them to do was to bring an additional action for indistinguishable relief, but for a three-year period beyond what the tax refund statute permits. We submit that that decision was erroneous for two principal reasons. First, the plain and unambiguous. It might help if you raise that lectern a bit. Is that better, Your Honor? Yes. Thank you. The plain and unambiguous terms of the tax refund statute, Section 7422A, expressly provide that any claimant who alleges that a tax has been illegally assessed, no matter the reason, must, before proceeding to court, file a refund claim with the Internal Revenue Service within three years after filing the tax return on which the illegal tax was paid. Mr. Jay, is the government running with the fox and chasing with the hounds? You want us to apply the provisions governing the Internal Revenue Code with regard to whether the statute has expired. But when it comes to interest, you say, oh, no, 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 that doesn't apply. Why shouldn't the two go pari passu, as we say? Well, we think, Your Honor, that the interest provision is, in fact, a key part of the tax refund statute. And so our Respondent's attempt to invoke the tax refund judgment interest provision is inconsistent with their theory that they're proceeding outside the scope of the tax code. Oh, yeah, they make the same mistake. But that doesn't justify your making the same mistake. Well, we think, Your Honor. I mean, it's either, you know, they're both in one pot or they're both in the other pot. And both sides want to, you know, want to split them up. Well, why don't they go together? Well, we think the whole case is in the Title 26 pot, Your Honor, that the whole case should proceed under the provisions of Title 26, meaning that Respondents have already received the full tax refund to which they're entitled. And to be sure, they received interest on that refund. And had they had to sue for it, they would have received interest under Section 2411. But because they are out — because they are no longer able to proceed under the exclusive tax refund procedure, of course, we think that they — that they can't plead around that by claiming constitutional damages instead. But if the Court were to agree with them and agree that they could pursue damages for a violation of the Export Clause, Section 2411 does not apply to such a claim because it's not a claim for an overpayment of tax. The term overpayment in the interest statute ties back to the Section 6402, which is the linchpin of the tax refund statute. And the — when a taxpayer has made an overpayment, that triggers the obligation of the IRS to provide a tax refund if one is timely sought. And if one isn't timely sought, as this Court recognized in the Brockamp case, the Congress has provided an unusually emphatic limitation on the Commissioner's ability to — Breyer. Can you explain one thing to me? I take it that they — everybody says they went through all the right IRS hoops to get back three years' worth of damages, i.e., they get their payments back, and they get interest. That's right. Now, what they want is they want three years before that. That's exactly right. Too late under Title 26. So what you're saying is, one, you can't get any interest, and, two, you can't get your money back at all. Well, on the interest, Your Honor, we're saying that they were entitled to the interest on the three years. I'm saying for three years they're home free. 
They get their payment back and they get their interest. Now let's go to the three preceding years. I'm a little confused about that because I can't work out. I suppose that the government is saying you get nothing. You don't get your money back and you don't get your interest. Or is the government saying you get your money back, you just don't get the interest? Which is it? And I don't see how it could be the latter. Uh, it is the former, Your Honor, uh, because uh, we're saying that because respondents waited for 21 years while paying the tax without uh, without filing a refund claim, uh, that they're limited to the three years immediately preceding the, uh, the refund claim. Right. I, I thought you were making a separate argument that even if they were entitled to it, despite the statute, they wouldn't be entitled to interest. You you you, you don't make that claim. No. Uh, if they were entitled to sue, not under the tax uh, under the tax code at all, but on the theory countenanced by the Court of Appeals, that this is not a suit for a tax refund at all, but a suit for damages arising directly under the Constitution, then there is no provision in Title 28 or anywhere else uh, that provides the required express provision of interest that's necessary to award interest it's on all claim against the government. Right. right. Okay. But why shouldn't it be uh, a suit contesting the constitutionality. Uh, I mean, the, in the usual case where you seek a refund, there are uh, adjustments that have to be made. Uh, but here, the, if the only question is the constitutionality of the tax, then what is the point of going through any kind of administrative process of the refund route? In the context of the coal uh, tax, Your Honor, and the export clause claim, the purpose of requiring exhaustion uh, and requiring respondents to proceed before the IRS uh, is that uh, the coal tax is exempt from uh, taxation under the Constitution only if the coal, at the moment the tax is imposed, which in this case is when it's first sold by the manufacturer, the, the mining company, uh, if at that moment the coal is in the stream of export. And in the context of the coal industry, and that can be a fairly fact-specific question, and the IRS technical advice me uh, memorandum that we've cited on page 11 of our reply brief uh, explains that to some, uh, to some degree. Uh, so uh, uh, it's possible for a timely refund claim uh, to allow the IRS to examine the facts and circumstances of the transaction and determine whether, in fact, the coal was in the stream of export at all. Uh, further, uh, the IRS, uh, if it has only an excise tax return from the taxpayer, IRS has no idea what percentage of that uh, coal was exported. Uh, well over 90 percent of the coal mined in the United States remains in the United States. And there's nothing on you know, Form 720, the excise tax return, that specifies how much of that coal uh, is exported. So if effectively, by filing the two-page refund claim, the taxpayer puts the IRS on notice of what uh, percentage of coal in the given years was, in fact, in the stream of export when it was sold, whether, in fact, the broker or whoever purchased it actually exported it from the country, and also uh, how, what the dollar amount of tax refund is being sought. So all of those, we think, are perfectly valid purposes uh, for requiring a uh, short but reasonable time to proceed before the IRS. And if the IRS denies the claim, then, of course, respondents uh, could have proceeded directly to court. And it was, uh, the IRS did not, in fact, deny their claim, uh, and the IRS has issued a notice of acquiescence specifying that coal tax uh, that uh, coal taxpayers who paid this uh, coal tax and filed timely refund claims uh, will receive a, uh, a refund to the full extent that Congress has permitted the IRS to grant refunds. Plus interest. 
Uh, plus interest. That's right, Your Honor. Under Section 6611, uh, interest is a uh, is fully available on refunds. And, and again, if the uh, if the, ta- if the IRS had denied the claims and uh, respondents had been forced to go to court, they would have received uh, interest uh, accounting for that time delay as well. So we think that Section 7422 is the exclusive means of bringing a claim that a tax was illegally or erroneously assessed or collected. The terms of the statute are clear, they're unambiguous, and they're exclusive. Uh, 7422A simply is the only way of, of, of bringing this claim. And we think that whether respondents denominate their claim as a statutory refund claim or a constitutional claim, the terms of Section 7422A plainly cover it. So we think that the Court need not necessarily answer the question whether the Export Clause creates a self-enforcing uh, cause of action at all. Because Could the IRS say that the statute li- — or Congress, I guess, say the statute of limitations is one month? Uh, for to file a timely refund claim, Your Honor? Yeah, and then anything after that, any constitutional violation after that is just not remediable. Well, uh, uh, the constitutional violation would have taken place before, uh, before on, in Your Honor's hypothetical. Yeah, five weeks before. In the, uh, in the McKesson case, Your Honor, uh, the Court outlined a number of the options that taxing authorities have uh, to respect their uh, strong fintral, uh, fiscal interests in the stability of their tax revenues while providing appropriate relief. And the Court uh, listed as uh, one way in which states, can, states and other taxing authorities can uh, protect that by providing a short statute of limitations. The Court also suggested that we're, we're, requ- talking about, we're talking about the Constitution here. And, I mean, in effect, I mean, I assume I could run through the usual routine. I mean, you wouldn't say they could have a statute of limitations of two days, right? Well, Your Honor, in McKesson, the Court appointed to another alternative, which is re- requiring that the uh, tax be paid under protest. And that effectively is a statute of limitations of zero days, you know, that, when, you know, that when the tax is paid, uh, the uh, taxpayer has to identify the basis of the constitutional cha- uh, challenge and the, am- uh, the amount being paid under protest. And under uh, before the Tucker Act, and indeed in the early years of the Tucker Act, uh, taxes had to be paid under protest, uh, or the taxpayer was out, uh, was out the remedy against the collector. Uh, and Congress has since provided that, in general, uh, taxpayers don't have to pay their taxes under protest. Instead, they can bring a refund claim within three years afterward. But that three-year limitation period, uh, you know, while relatively generous, is absolute. And the Court held in the Brockamp case that the three years can't be extended, not, e- not even for you know, an individual taxpayer suffering from senile dementia for the entire time period. Do you think there are any circumstances in which a taxpayer can bring a claim under the Tucker Act for the refund of an unconstitutional tax? Well, we think uh, — I want to clarify, Your Honor, that uh, any lawsuit, whether it's on, on respondents' theory or on our theory, uh, any lawsuit that's filed is, in fact, under the Tucker Act. Well, any, any situation in which uh, such a suit can be brought without having uh, filed a claim previously with the IRS. If the, only, uh, if the only basis for the taxpayer's recovery is that the taxpayer has paid a tax and the tax was illegally or, uh, or erroneously assessed because it was unconstitutional, we think that Section 7422A and the associated time limits provide the procedure for recovering under the Tucker Act. Section 2501, which is the, uh, what respondents contend is the only procedure that applies uh, to uh, the claims that they've brought, uh, Section 2501 is the Court so, Just to be clear, so your argument is not limited to the export clause. It, it doesn't matter what provision of the Constitution the tax violates. 
the same the same rule would apply. Okay, Congress has made no distinction in the statute between con- one type of constitutional claim and another, or indeed one type of illegality or another. And we've cited some uh, some examples in our opening brief of uh, the numerous constitutional provisions that taxpayers may bring uh, challenges under. I, and there are at least five clauses in the original Constitution that regulate the federal government's taxing authority. There are at least four more that regulate the states, uh, and you know, not to mention the Bill of Rights. Uh, so constitutional claims uh, are commonly brought by taxpayers against federal taxes, uh, and the tax refund procedure provides a full, uh, fully effective, fully adequate way of vindicating that right. The only requirement uh, is that it uh, be submitted in writing to the IRS within three years after filing the tax return in question. Do you know what, what happened before the Tucker Act with inverse condemnation claims? Uh, the government violates the Fifth Amendment takings clause. Um, or the 14th Amendment, they can cause a fight to the fifth, um, by inverse condemnation. There's no Tucker Act. Did the, was there a constitutional cause of action for damages? Uh, before there was the Tucker Act, Your Honor, uh, when the government took property and was obliged to pay compensation, uh, the claim was presented to Congress, uh, and Congress could legislate relief by private bill. Eventually, Congress created the Court of Claims uh, purely as an uh, Article I tribunal. There was no judicial review because its decisions were always subject to revision by Congress. And eventually, Congress, uh, having uh, tired of adjudicating all, uh, all these claims in a legislative manner, gave the Court of, uh, court of Claims uh, Independent status with its uh, decisions reviewable uh, in Article Three courts, and so and uh, by enacting the Tucker Act, uh, takings claims became brought in the uh, in the Court of Federal Claims. So, uh, because we think uh, Section seventy four twenty two A is a uh, is a completely adequate remedy for any constitutional claim that respondents might bring. Uh, we submit that this Court's Bivens cases and this Court's unlawful tax cases show that there is no warrant to, inf- to create a new cause of action directly under the Constitution in circumstances like this, where the taxpayer has a fully effective remedy, allows the t- uh, that remedy to become time-barred, uh, but instead uh, brings a claim purportedly under the Constitution against the identical defendant in the identical forum seeking the identical relief. Under those circumstances, this Court has never fashioned a Bivens-type implied cause of action for a violation of the Constitution. Indeed, uh, in Bush versus Lucas, Schweiker versus Chalicki, and other cases, the Court has recognized that when Congress has legislated a remedial scheme, uh, it doesn't, uh, uh, this Court will still stay its hand before uh, creating a new Bivens action, even if that remedial scheme has very short time limits, such as the, thir- the 30-day time limit, uh, the civil service remedies that were at issue in Bush, uh, or the, th- or the exhaustion requirement of Title VII, which substitutes uh, for an equal protection claim for federal employees. Uh, even, even in those circumstances, uh, and even if the remedies that are available are equitable and not money damages, even in those circumstances, this Court will not create a new cause of action for money damages. And in this case, if respondents had filed in a timely way, uh, in this, uh, referring to the uh, relief that they're seeking in this case, uh, they're seeking relief for 1994, 1995, and 1996. If they'd filed by April 30th, 1997, by which point Cypress Amex Coal Company was already vigorously litigating the constitutionality of the coal excise tax in the Court of Federal Claims, uh, if they had filed by that, uh, by that time, they could have received full relief. So their failure to assert their rights in a timely way certainly uh, didn't give the Court of Appeals warrant to uh, create a new Bivens-type implied right of action. The Court has no further questions at this time. I'll reserve. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. 
Ms. Millette. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this is a question of statutory construction. And if Cong- what, what this Court's precedent has made clear in Enix versus Williams Packing is that if, government, if the government wants to enjoy the special, extraordinary protections of the tax refund scheme, it has to assert a plausible basis for tax liability. It hasn't done that here. There was never any claim that they have any legitimate right to this revenue as a source, <clears throat> as a basis for taxes, that they have any legitimate tax regulatory power over this, this export process, um, or that they have any legitimate basis for defending this statute as constitutional under any circumstances. Well, it, was that, it was that obvious. So why did it take so long for the coal companies to realize the government owed them the money? Justice Stevens, that's because my, my clients are not Fortune 100 companies, and I don't think the Constitution or Congress imposes a test on the tax code that requires um, that sort of level of scrutiny. I've got, we've got clients here that are small. They have no in-house lawyers, and they had accountants who paid the taxes. And so the, the short answer is they didn't notice. It's not that they looked at it and thought it was constitutional. One thing that's clear is that as soon as anybody looked at this, statute. As soon as anybody, the court, the government that collected the tax for 20 years and did have a constitutional duty to look at the Constitution, as soon as anyone looked at it, there was no defense offered. This is an extraordinary case where the government made no effort to defend this tax whatsoever in district court. Are there any other cases where they said, well, it's not in the stream of commerce yet, or there was an intermediate broker or anything like that? Are there any complexities like that? Justice Kennedy, there is a statutory definition, 26 U.S.C. 4221, that deals with stream of commerce and that mirrors this Court's decision in the A.G. Spalding case, which says that either either the direct sale, but the manufacturer doesn't sale directly to the exporter or has the broker, so the one or two steps is stream of commerce, and after that, it's not going to be. That's the same thing this Court did in A.G. Spalding. If someone wanted to fight about that statutory application, they wouldn't be raising a constitutional claim like we are here. What happened? But in, in none of these cases did they have those sorts of problems? Not in these cases. My clients, direct, I think almost all of the claims, they directly exported it themselves. There was no dispute whatsoever. If there's a debate, factually or legally, about whether this is in the stream of com- — if it's not in the export stream, it's not an export clause violation. If there's a factual debate, you wouldn't fall within the Enix versus Williams packing exception. There was no factual debate. There's a stipulated judgment in this case. What Enix tells us, again, is that the, go- the government can't have a tax be a tax solely for the purpose of curtailing constitutional recovery. That's the only way — that this was a legitimate tax in their view, not to collect revenue. If 7422A had said any any internal revenue tax, including a tax imposed in alleged violation of the export clause, that would cut cut out the six-year statute of limitations, right? If it said the refund procedure applies to any internal revenue tax, including one imposed in alleged violation of the export clause? I think it would clear up an awful lot. If I could just clarify, though, what this Court held in Enix versus William Packing is that the phrase, any tax, only applies if the government is at least willing to assert a plausible defense for the tax. And so it would depend on whether any tax would still include that limitation in your scenario, if, it, if they were willing to assert a plausible export no, clause claim. Nothing, nothing different from what it is now, but just Congress makes clear that 
a tax and alleged violation of the export clause falls within the term any internal revenue tax? Then it, I think my position would be that it does not, because this, this Court has held for half a century without Congress changing it that any tax means a tax that the government asserts is valid. It doesn't have to be correct. It has to assert that it's valid. Otherwise, it's in the guise of a tax. Well, it, it asserted it was valid if, if this uh, coal was not shipped overseas. You're putting an awful burden on the government to know when, when, when the coal is severed and shipped. You're saying if they mistake uh, a shipment as being uh, only for domestic use rather than for shipment abroad, they don't have any basis whatever for the tax claim. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. The problem in this case, Justice Scalia, is that the, the sta- there were two statutes. There was a statute imposing the coal tax, um, 26, 6 U.S.C. 4121. This is all on the first page of our brief. And then there was an amendment to the exemption for exports um, in 26 U.S.C. 4221 that specifically said the general tax exemption for exports does not apply to this coal tax. And that provision captured nothing but exports of coal. So your point is that you don't have to go through the refund requirements of 20, of 7422 if the uh, government was, although it did ask for the money as a tax, they were really out to lunch. I mean, the trouble, is there any authority for an argument like that? I mean, the trouble, I guess, that I would have that argument is, one, is, is linguistic, because it goes on to say, or of any sum alleged to have been excessive or in any manner wrongfully collected. And then the other thing is just common sense. Suppose you have an insane tax collector. You know, I mean, that could happen. And and the the insane tax collector they discover some years later has been assessing all these penalties and and, uh, for no reason, and people have been paying some of them because they a terrible tragedy, terrible thing. But I guess they'd be stuck, I'd always thought, with the three-year statute of limitations. So so, so even though it's really nuts. Now, now is there there, uh, — any authority for us making a distinction between uh, an insane, get an extreme, an, an insane assessment of a tax and uh, just a wrongful assessment of a tax? The, the authority is this Court's unanimous opinion in Enix versus Williams Packing, which said, which said that if — that was dealing with — it was a tax injunction act, but the same language, no suit shall be maintained for any tax in any court. And it said in that, that statutory language, any tax means something that the government can plausibly defend as a tax. Doesn't have what to about the any sum mm-hmm. uh, in any manner? You know, what about that language? Again, the, the key language, that, that, that Any all, sum in any manner wrongfully collected. Right. And this Court dealt with that, I think, in, in, in DOM, and it, it, some sort of has its own rules in the tax thing. But this is, this is, the question is, this has any tax. And any tax doesn't mean something that's just in the guise of tax. So whether the guy's insane or Congress just forgot to read the export clause, but as soon as we look, everyone knows this is unconstitutional, then understand that what the impact of that is, that means the only way this is a legitimate tax, under the government's view, the only legitimate tax function that this serves is to cut off constitutional remedies. That's its only role. No, no, the role, the role, their their argument is, I'm terribly sorry, but if the way you're hurt is you paid a tax you shouldn't pay and you want to get a refund, go through the administrative procedure. 
This Court said in Enix that you don't that, — that tax refund — the whole point of the Tax Injunction Act is to funnel everybody into the tax refund procedure. And this Court said you don't have to go if it is not a tax. And what they mean by not a tax is that it can't plausibly defend, be defended by the government as a tax. This doesn't happen often. This is an extraordinary exception. But this is the case where it did. And if the, go- so the government why do you, can't I, — I take it, though, that you concede the six-year statute of limitations under the Tucker Act, right? I mean, your brief says this is an unbending and unqualified prohibition on the use of exports, mm-hmm. except up to — if it's before six years in one day. Well, no, it's — You it's, take an, an adamant position with respect to three years, but you give up six years. No, it, it, it's unbending and wrong, whether it's within six years or ten years, but we agree that a constitutional right can have a statute of limitations. If there's a constitutional right that doesn't have any statute of limitations, I don't know what it is, and it's not this one. The question Why is — Why aren't three what, years enough? I'm sorry? Why aren't three years enough? This is a question of statutory construction, and Congress determined what the right statute of limitations is for a constitutional claim, and that's six years. If Congress had a three-year statute of limitations under the Tucker Act for all constitutional claims, we wouldn't be able so, to hear. So the rhetoric in your brief about how this is a constitutionally-based prohibition is not pertinent. You're saying if the statute was clear and it said three years, that'd be fine, even though it's a claim under the export clause. If we don't, we don't say that the export clause, right, distinguishes between three years and six years in its own right. What the export clause does, though, um, there's a statutory construction argument, and we have the Enix argument, but we also think there are substantial constitutional concerns here. And the export clause makes it most imperative for this Court to, to continue to adhere to its definition of any tax from Enix. Why, why, is, the export, that's because why is the export clause so, so significant? The, the, the only uh, other uh, self-executing uh, constitutional clause that provides for damages automatically that comes to mind is the takings clause. And we have allowed the states to require uh, claimants to jump through innumerable hoops. They have to exhaust all their administrative remedies before they can bring a suit here. Why, why is the uh, export clause any, any more sacrosanct? Because we don't, under the Constitution, the government hasn't done anything wrong unless it, until, less than until it actually affects a taking and doesn't pay for it through process. Those processes are how we deter, get to the point where there's been an actual constitutional violation here. No administrative process is necessary to have, the, to know that taxes have been imposed on exports. And what's distinct about the export clause, to get back to Chief Justice Roberts' question, is that it is, this Court said unanimously in U.S. Shoe, a simple, direct, unqualified prohibition on government, congressional tax power in terms, and it disallows any effort to raise revenue through the tax power. Volenti non fit injuria. If, uh, indeed, the taxpayer pays out the money uh, for an unconstitutional uh, export tax, it seems to me that person has no claim until he complies with the administrative procedures that, that render that tax unconstitutional. But uh, up until the point where he's paying it voluntarily, it seems to me there's, there's no constitutional violation. Congress eliminated in the early 1920s any pro- prepayment protest requirement under the tax law. And the tax law, the Internal Revenue Code, applies sweepingly to Americans across this country. 
vast majority of whom are not equipped with tax lawyers at their side to make protests at the moment they pay their taxes. That's never been required. The I'm question not saying it has to be made at the moment they pay their taxes. I'm just saying until it's made, there's, there's no unconstitutional uh, uh, unconstitutional export tax. That's right. Until the tax — well, there can be an unconstitutional statute on the books. No one's been injured by it or affected by it until somebody actually pays it or is required by the government to pay it. I don't dispute that. But keep in mind, we're dealing with a tax refund scheme. The tax refund scheme is an extraordinary creature in the law for many good reasons, but that, that, that reverses the order of everything. It makes you pay before any, any uh, entitlement has been shown to that money by the government. I thought you didn't yeah, But here there was a payment. Here there was a payment. Yes. Uh, it's, it's different than if you try to enjoin the collection at the outset. It's only different. That, so that argument doesn't work. It's only different in the sense that the government's interests are less. I mean, the government's interests are most acute in having people pointed to the tax refund scheme. This Court has said time and again before, you know, to pay first and fight later. And as a result, I mean, well, what about the deficiency procedure? And I don't know if that applies with excise taxes, but suppose they didn't pay this tax and they get a notice of deficiency. Where would they go? There, there's nowhere for them to go for this particular tax. You can't go to tax court. Why? Um, because tax court doesn't apply to excise taxes for the most part. If there, there may be a few exceptions. It essentially applies to income, gift, and estate taxes, and it certainly didn't apply to this provision here. They could have wait, They could have gotten the assessment and gotten on the phone with the IRS. Otherwise, they'd have to wait for a lien or levy. Now, the government, by the way, in its reply well, but, brief, but if, suggests, we, if we accept your view in this case, they can go into a district court and enjoin it. It's not a tax. Tax injunction act doesn't apply. They, if you accept and, this and, course, and I, and I, and which is just what Justice Ginsburg's question is pointing out, and earlier I, I, had, I had indicated that in this case they did pay the tax. So it I, seems to me there's a, there's a distinction. It may be that you would prevail in your argument. Oh no, we couldn't have gotten. If they try, do you think they could enjoin the collection of a tax? No, they couldn't because you, in, in addition to showing that the the, gov- the uh, government's imposition of the tax is. Uh, legally indefensible, you still have to show entitlement to an injunction. And unless, unless you can establish irreparable harm just by paying money, which I don't, I'm not aware of any coal company that could have, you couldn't have gotten well, an injunction. Well, I mean, Everything, your argument, you say that's absolutely void, it doesn't apply, just get an injunction. That you can't get an injunction just because something is unlawful. That's never been allowed under equity. You also have to show irreparable harm. Oh, well, then we'll invent the hypothetical company's going to go broke and all that stuff. Well, I mean, it's not a question of inventing. This Court dealt with exactly that question in Enix. Um, where Enix versus Williams Packing, and later again in South Carolina versus Regan, Commissioner versus Shapiro, that you can't just come in and say it's unlawful, that you actually have to then establish irreparable harm. Everything in the tax scheme points to taxpayers with enormous penalties and enormous risks to pay, to pay first, fight later. And when a taxpayer does it, it's ill You can't have it both ways. You're saying it isn't a tax for your purposes, and then in my hypothetical case, you say, oh, well, you have to go through the tax. It's the government that wants The same with your answer, what I thought was your answer to Justice Ginsburg. It's the government that wants to have it both ways. It wants to say it is a tax just for purposes of making it a non-constitutional case under the Tucker Act and to make you go through the tax scheme, but in no other way. Is this defensible as a tax? Just looking at your argument, I I, I see it now, I think, if I'm right. But it would have very broad reach. It would reach, it doesn't just concern the constitutional claim, it concerns any claim you have against the IRS. And there's authority that says if the IRS position is too far out, 
you can go get an injunction. That's what you're pointing to. Then your argument is, because of that authority, that kind of an exception for the far-out RRS claim also applies to the statute of limitation and administrative requirement. Your problem is the latter's never been held. And the reason that that's a problem, I take it, is because when you're talking about injunctions, you're talking about basic equity. But when you're talking about later on administrative requirements, there's really no reason they couldn't file the claim. And if we were to accept an argument on the, uh, to the contrary and analogize it, it's going to cut through rules, regulations, statutes, constitutional claims, everything, really making a hash of their provision there, of the, of the uh, administrative provision. So what is your response to that thought? I, I have two responses. One, it's going to have far less effect in this situation, in the postpayment situation, than it did in Enix where it wasn't limited to the export clause, this situation is only going to work where you not only establish the government has no basis for this tax, a hard thing to do, but that you have a money-mandating constitutional provision. There aren't many of those. If, you're, if you don't have a money-mandating provision, you've got nowhere else to go but the tax scheme. So it's extremely limited. But I want to get back. This is not about an equity rule. This Court was specific in Enix versus William Packing when it said our prior decision under Miller versus Standard Nut, which had done a more generous view of this Get Around the Tax Injunction Act, was wrong because a Tax Injunction Act is not an equitable rule. Enix was a statutory construction rule. Pages 6, 7, and 8 of that decision make it plain in terms. We talk about what the Act requires, and the language that this Court is construing is the, is the phrase, any tax. And if it has no legitimate basis, then it's in the guise of a tax. That same language has been on the books for almost half a century. Congress went back to the Tax Injunction Act eight times without changing it in response to this Court's decision. Enix has been reaffirmed by this Court five times. Congress enacted an entirely new Internal Revenue Code in 1986 that used that any tax language in 7422 with this Court's five decisions on the book and kept that language. And it makes sense. Congress doesn't, doesn't enact a tax where its only tax function what you want to do about your argument, as I hear it, has nothing to do with the nature of the claim that you're asserting to get the money back. It has to do with the nature of the IRS's defense. It has it, it, Well, can you do it that way? Can you say the word any tax or any claim? I can't remember that other. What was it? It was any, uh, any, any sum, any sum or any tax. Can you say, well, it means one thing. If they're saying that the reason they want it back is that it violates the Constitution, and those words mean a different thing, if the reason that you want it back is it violates an IRS reg, it violates an IRS statute. I'm not saying that any tax means anything different. I'm just pointing out that if you succeed — Well, if and it you doesn't say, mean anything different, and then if the very far-out claim to a tax is so far-out it isn't a tax — that would be true in the regulation context, in the statutory context, as well as the constitutional context. Am I, am I missing something? No, because you have to have a money-mandating claim under the Constitution to fall within the Tucker Act. The, the, as this Court has said, the, the, the Tucker Act, for purposes of statutory claims under the Internal Revenue Code, as this Court said in Kreider, takes three years to statute of limitations. So I, I don't think you could after Kreider, that you would still have a six-year statute of limitations under the Tucker Act for a statutory tax claim. The difference is constitutional enforcement. And this is fundamentally a constitutional 
right that's being enforced. And the question is, would Congress have thought — this is all a question of statutory construction. Would Congress have thought this is more a constitutional claim or a tax claim? And they've made the sensible decision, at least as this Court construed it, in Enix, in South Carolina versus Regan, in address it in Janus, in Bob Jones University, um, and the Americans United case, all of which are in our brief. But you say, you're saying it's both. You're not saying it's either or, because for three years you did use the refund procedure. So you, you used the refund procedure for the years that were within the three-year period, and then for the years that were outside the three-year period, you have this other theory. So you're, you're not saying this is not for refund, that that route is closed. The only route is this constitutional, this claim directly under the export clause. But you, you, your own conduct seems to have been, it's our option. We can treat it as a refund claim, or we can treat it as a constitutional claim. What one can get, the, there's nothing in the tax administrative scheme where one, when one shows up to file a tax refund where you say, if I go by this route, I'm waiving all others. It's not like I'm agreeing to go through arbitration and foregoing my rights to go through um, a court procedure. Co- Congress and open administration. What you were just telling us is that this is not a refund claim. This is a constitutional claim. But you are now saying, I think, that it's both. It's whatever the taxpayer or the uh, plaintiff wants it to be. It's a constitutional claim to get your tax money back. That's right. And the administrative scheme is fully amenable to that. That's certainly the government's position, and we don't disagree. Um, the question well, plus, is when plus you, you get interest. Plus, yes, absolutely. We, th- we think we get it on both grounds. But you get there. You you get, you're you're saying you get interest too. In either way, you say. I thought you said for the three years that are within the three-year um, refund limit, you get interest, and then you're also saying for going back six years, you also get interest. You're not saying that if you, if you're outside the refund procedure, you don't get interest. Right, but that's because we're. I mean, there, there's a, there's a, a separate interest provision um, in the tax code for the administrative refund procedure. They don't rely on 28 U.S.C. 2411. I think it's 26 U.S.C. 6511. But there's a specific administrative refund tax, or I'm sorry, re- interest provision for the administrative refund scheme. And so under that, if you're, when you're in the administrative scheme, you get what the administrative scheme's interest provision gives you. We don't dispute that. Now, the question is, once you've gone to court, the relevant interest provision is the one in 28 U.S.C., not in the tax code, by the way, but in 28 U.S.C., um, providing, dam- providing for interest when you've recovered an overpayment of taxes. Is the interest the same in amount in either case? The, yes, because the, in, in 2411 it cross-references the — well, let me clarify. There's one potential wrinkle. But generally speaking, 2411, if you look at it, it's, on, it's at the but, end but of the — But cross-references — 2411 is what you use in the court when you have a straight tax refund claim. It's not as though 2411 is there for some other claim. It's what you get when you go to court and you're suing for a refund. That's 2411. It's applicable um, if you get a judgment or an overpayment in respect of any internal revenue tax. That's what it's in Title 28, but that's what it's for. It's, it's for an overpayment in respect of any 
internal revenue tax. And this is all on page 4A of the um, government's brief, if you want to see where it references the internal revenue interest provision. Now, there's nothing there that says you have to have gone through administrative scheme. All you have to have is an overpayment. If you have an overpayment under bond with teller, but account stated theory, you have any internal revenue tax. Hmm? You did your whole argument is this isn't an internal revenue tax. It's so clearly not an internal revenue tax that you have a constitutional claim directly under the Constitution. So how does it become, for purposes of 2411, an internal revenue tax? I'm, I'm sorry, I misunderstood your question, Justice Ginsburg. I think, but I want to make clear that you don't have to go through the refund scheme to get this. This interest would apply in Bonwit Teller for accounts stated in Rosenman case where, for deposits on taxes. That's how we read it. But the, your second point, yes, that if we say this is not a plausible tax, under Enix versus Williams, um, what we, that, that I think if this court agrees that this is not a tax under Enix versus Williams, so that we're not bound by 7422, then I, I agree that our interest argument becomes harder at that point under textually. I will tell you that I still think the fact that they say in respect of any internal revenue tax gives us room to say that where the government has at least treated it and collected the money as though it were an internal revenue tax, that might be a way to get interest. If this Court agrees, though, that it's but not. You but you don't agree in your basic claim that if the government is treating it as an internal revenue tax, which it certainly didn't, so you, you, you'd say that works only for the interest. Only, I'm sorry, only because we have the in respect of language. That's the only difference. But if this Court disagrees with that, and we recognize it's harder if this Court agrees, we have a separate constitutional argument that the export clause, just like the uh, just compensation clause, requires interest paid in its own right. And so that's the alternative basis. And this Court, of course, can affirm the judgment on any basis supported by the record. But I want to get back very clearly that there's the bottom, I mean, Justice Blue, you talked about, you know, which pot you want to put this in. And the, the, the rarity of this case and what's unique about it is that the government came in agreeing up front, stipulated judgment, no fact disputes, no law disputes. This is in the pot of no legitimate status as a tax, no claim whatsoever. The government couldn't think of anything. But for purposes of limiting your constitutional relief, then it's in the pot of a legitimate tax. And we think they can't have it both ways. And particularly as a matter of statutory construction, this is ultimately a question of which scheme is better fitted to vindicating the Constitution. And Congress said any tax, just like it said in the Tax Injunction Act. This Court has said what any tax means. It said it five times after Enix. And this and Congress has has not reacted to it. Stare decisis applies most powerfully in the statutory construction Congress of, context. And if Congress thought there were a problem with what, with how this Court defined any tax, it would have said so. It could have done so. It's had half a century no, but to you, do something. You give all this up when it comes to the statute of limitations. I mean, the government's argument could be just as implausible as you suggested is here, but if it involves a claim six years and one day out, then it's just too bad. And it doesn't matter that it's a constitutional claim. It doesn't matter how uh, uh, erroneous the government's position was, because the government can impose limitations like that, even on the assertion of constitutional claims. That's all they're doing here. Now, the Tucker Act doesn't use the word any tax in defining the statute of limitations. It's the statute of limitations for constitutional claims. Our argument is about what the word any tax means in 7422, and does it force us to go through the tax refund scheme. Our argument is, as this Court said unanimously in Enix, a decision that's never been questioned by any justice of this Court, 
that any tax does not apply if it has no tax status for any other purpose. It well, can't be said just to limit. Just as unanimously, a couple of things last year in Hink and EC term as well, and that certainly the Federal Circuit's uh, decision. Uh, wouldn't have come out the same way if they had had Hink and EC term of trust on the books. Well, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure it would have come out differently. Maybe they would have explained things differently. But this court said in those cases, the question is, which statutory scheme is better fitted? And at two levels, we think the Tucker Act is better fitted for this claim. One, because any tax only applies when there's an asserted legitimate basis for the tax, and two, the export clause is a unique limitation that specifically denies the government any authority to use exports as a source of revenue. And you have a refund scheme here that has been designed over the years specifically to protect revenue interest, to make you pay the revenue first and have them hold it. It's not just holding them for six months. They had to pay every two weeks. But, of course, the government didn't treat that as paid for purposes of interest until the end of the quarter when a return was filed. That's one way why the interest calculation might be different under the Tucker Act than it would be under um, the the refund scheme, just the timing of it, whether it's the deposit or the actual return. Um, Justice Kennedy, I forgot to get back to you on that. But the um, question here is whether whether the export clause can be fully enforced by which it's 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 a strong it's not a suggestion and it doesn't say when you're doing your tax stuff it's okay if you slop over on exports a little bit Ta- exports are completely off limit for the tax power and congress using its tax power to create a tax scheme that specifically preserves and protects revenue and is not a revenue neutral system is not the best scheme for vindicating the export clause it's not better fitted for that it is at cross purposes with the export clause but at bottom, this Court doesn't need to get, the, get to that constitutional question. We think it certainly informs the analysis. It certainly is enough of a constitutional concern or doubt to conclude that Enix still applies any tax in the Tax Injunction Act, any tax in any court. No suit shall remain for, maintained for any tax in any court means the same thing in 7422 that it means in the Tax Injunction Act. If Congress thought it meant something different, it's had half, almost half a century to tell us. It hasn't done that. And the export clause can't serve its unique historical function of keeping government's tax regulatory hands off the export. Pro- May I finish my sentence? Yes. Keep my hands hands off the tax export process and the revenue out of the federal fisc, unless a co- this is treated as a constitutional claim. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Ms. Millett. Uh, Mr. Jay, you have 15 minutes. Mr. Chair, I hope in the 15 minutes you will um, state what the government's position is on this Enox case that's been mentioned at least a dozen times. I'll be glad to, Your Honor. Uh, Enoch's case construed uh, not Section 7422, but Section 7421, the Anti-Injunction Act uh, provision of the tax code. And the question in Enox uh, was whether the taxpayer uh, simply by alleging that the tax was uh, so in, so invalidly applied that it was only in the guise of the tax, could avoid paying the tax and bring an injunctive claim. The court in Enox held that it could not because the, the taxpayer had not, uh, in fact, satisfied the basic requirement of all claims for injunctive relief. That's irreparable injury. And the court also held that uh, whether a tax is defensible uh, for purposes of this uh, very narrow exception, is to be determined on the basis of the information to the government at the time of suit. 
So in this — Wait. What, what very narrow exception? It didn't apply the exception, as you — uh, the court was preserving, uh, I think, in dicta because, because the, uh, the court ultimately denied the exception in that case and in each case since. Uh, the, preserving the holding in standard nut margarine in the case from the 1920s, and, uh, Justice Breyer alluded to this when he asked uh, my friend Ms. Millette about whether this exception is geared primarily to factual issues or to legal issues. In standard nut margarine, uh, the government uh, had d- decided to attempt to impose a tax meant for oleomargarine uh, on a product made entirely from nuts. And this Court, uh, you, know, without, uh, co- you know, without construing the tax injunction provision, uh, simply referring to principles of equity, uh, this Court held that, uh, that the government's theory of assessing the tax uh, uh, was uh, simply in the guise of a tax and, and that permitted the, uh, the injunctive claim to proceed. In Williams Packing, the, government's, uh, the government had a colorable basis for assessing the tax, and so the taxpayer was remitted to uh, the same remedies that any taxpayer who wants to challenge a tax as having been unlawfully assessed uh, or collected uh, is subject to. That is to pay the tax, file a refund claim, uh, and if the refund claim is upheld either by the IRS or subsequently in court, to receive a full refund uh, with interest. Don't don't the two go together? If you can bring an injunction action, surely you don't have to pay, pay the tax. Well, if you if you can satisfy the requirements for an, uh, for injunctive relief, uh, and in Williams Packing, the taxpayer couldn't, and in uh, the cases since the taxpayer couldn't, uh, then the court can enjoin the collection of the tax as applied to you. Well, that, that's what she she say she's saying that those conditions exist here that this is not not a plausible tax, and therefore she could have gotten an injunction, and therefore it, uh, by by parity of reasoning, she doesn't have to go through the tax. Uh, uh, provisions. Uh, I think uh, I have three responses to that. I mean, one is that we don't think that a uh, an exception to the to 7421 should carry over into section 7422. But even in the circumstances of this case, this is a facially constitutional tax. The tax is imposed on coal mined in the United States, and if no co- if none of the coal that's subject to the tax is ever in the stream of export when the tax is imposed then the tax is perfectly constitutional, and that is why Section 4121 remains on the books today. Uh, the tax is unconstitutional only in certain narrow circumstances when the, ta- when the coal actually is in the stream of export. As I explained well, to you, Judge- you could say the same about the tax on, on uh, oleomargarine. It's a perfectly valid tax, but not when you impose it on nuts. And here, the, the tax on coal is a perfectly valid tax, but not when you uh, impose it on a coal that's in the stream of export. But if one of these coal companies uh, had sought to enjoin the tax, uh, the government would have pointed to the provision in Williams Packing that says that uh, whether the tax is defensible is to be determined on the basis of the information available to the government at the time of suit. And until the taxpayer uh, demonstrates that the coal is actually in the stream of export, which is precisely what's done during the refund process that the taxpayers used in this case to show that their coal was in the stream of export uh, when, they obtained the re- when they obtained the refund, uh, in, that's, what, uh, that's how they obtain full, uh, full relief. Uh, but in, in any event, uh, the history of this litigation uh, shows that uh, this, is not re- this is not a claim about the facial unconstitutionality of the tax, because the tax continued to be collected without protest uh, in the case of the respondents here for 21 consecutive years. And uh, by the time they filed for a refund, this Court had decided U- uh, IBM, it had decided USU, the district court had decided uh, Ranger Fuel, and the government had, pu- had announced that it would not appeal the decision in Ranger Fuel striking down the coal tax. 
But that doesn't mean that for that, for that entire time, uh, the government uh, had no basis on which to defend the tax. I mean, the government had colorable arguments to defend uh, the tax at issue in USU in 1996, June of 1996, and it had uh, colorable arguments to defend the harbor maintenance tax uh, in USU. I may have misspoke. IBM in 1996 and USU in 1998. So to say that during the period at issue in this case, 1994 through 1996, the tax was so facially invalid that the, uh, that the narrow Williams packing exception f- to another statutory provision uh, justifies respondents' uh, attempt to circumvent the tax refund statute, we just think is not correct. I mean, in, uh, uh, in the case of a taxpayer uh, who, uh, who can't satisfy the exception, uh, you know, the tax code does indeed put that taxpayer to the choice. It gives them a fully effective post-payment refund remedy where they can avoid penal- any penalties and interest by paying the tax uh, and litigating for a full refund. After I, I, is, is the government's view that the money that they're seeking here, if you look at 7422, that it falls within the, the language of any internal revenue tax alleged to be erroneously or illegally assessed, or the language, any sum alleged to have been in any manner wrongfully collected, or both? I don't think that we need to go beyond uh, the, the first clause, Your Honor. So when I decide this case, I should forget the words, any sum. Uh, I mean, the Court construed a uh, similar provision in Flora versus United States uh, in 1960, uh, which uh, explained that, that any sum uh, is a cumulative provision uh, so that if something is within the uh, — within the scope of an internal revenue tax alleged to have been erroneously or, or illegally collected or assessed, that's as far as you need to go. But it need that if, in fact, is not within the scope of the word tax, then it is not within any sum. Uh, no, uh, to the contrary, Your Honor. I think that the holding in Flora is that if it's not within the scope of the first provision, then you would need to look at the second, uh, at, which I, actually the third provision, the any sum language. But in, in, because in Enoch, she's quite right, Your Opposing lawyer, just it says it, the exaction is merely in the guise of a tax, and when it says it's in within the guise of a tax, then it doesn't fall within the Tax Injunction Act. And there it says if it is clear that under no circumstances could the government ultimately prevail, the central purpose of the Tax Injunction Act is inapplicable, and then it's just in the guise of a tax, and that she says, is the test we should apply here. So that's where I think Justice Ginsburg began. What is your specific response to that? Well, my specific response, Your Honor, first is that uh, uh, in this case, uh, the tax simply was not in the guise of a tax. Uh, but even if, uh, you know, today, if the taxpayer were, uh, if a taxpayer were alleging that the coal tax were in the guise of a tax uh, and that it therefore could bring a prepayment uh, prepayment action, it does not then follow that the taxpayer uh, could still, after the fact, uh, if it opted not to bring that prepayment action, the taxpayer would, uh, could then escape uh, the three-year, non-tollable, unusually emphatic limitation period that applies to a claim for postpayment remedy, which is the exclusive means of obtaining a postpayment remedy. And, uh, you know, the courts recognize time and again that taxing authorities have a strong interest in uh, fiscal stability uh, and in effectively closing the books on a particular tax year 
uh, so that taxpayers, after the tax is paid, if they want to protest the tax, they have three years in which to put the government on notice that, you know, uh, even if the claim is, this is uh, — this tax is so beyond the pale uh, that it can't be defended. They have to put the government on notice of that claim, and if they do, then the IRS considers it, and if the IRS turns them down, then they can proceed to, uh, proceed to district court or to the Court of Federal Claims. Uh, in, ad uh, in addition, I think, uh, I just wanted to clarify one point about the availability of prepayment remedies in this case. Uh, I mean, Justice Ginsburg, uh, my friend Ms. Millett was correct about uh, the fact that ex this excise tax does not is not susceptible to the deficiency proceeding in tax court. I mean, we've, we've cited in footnote 7 of our reply brief, page 16, uh, the possibility that there, uh, that there may be another route if the taxpayer feels strongly about uh, the unconstitutionality of the tax, is willing uh, to take the chance that if the taxpayer's position is rejected, uh, that the taxpayer may be liable for uh, penalties and interest for not paying the tax. Because, of course, the general rule is that the taxpayer is, is expected to pay the tax uh, and proceed post-payment by putting the IRS on notice of the claim. Uh, but uh, Congress, in Section 6330, uh, C2B of, the, of Title 26, uh, has provided some uh, limited uh, ability if the taxpayer has not previously been able to litigate the merits of the tax. Uh, the taxpayer uh, has a, a limited opportunity to do so first before the IRS, then in tax court, then before the Court of Appeals. Again, if the tax uh, — on uh, Ms. Millett's supposition that this is a uh, completely, clearly unconstitutional tax, uh, then the taxpayer would have the option uh, of doing that. Again, uh, the refund scheme is set up so that if the taxpayer doesn't want to take the chance that its argument will not be accepted, uh, the taxpayer has a simple, open remedy to file a refund claim at any point within three years. That's exactly what respondents did not do for the 21 consecutive years that they paid this tax without complaint. The Court has no further questions. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.